Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. I'm so glad to see you all. I hope that you were able to plug in at some point over these last few days. Um, Last week was pretty nice. It was so good to have people back in the church um, really looking out. I I had not remembered um, when I was preparing my Easter sermon, I thought, has it really been three years? And so I went back and looked at just Easter a year ago and nobody was there. We still could only have 10 people maximum in the church space. And I had even forgotten that at that point, the only person who could receive communion was the celebrant. So the rest of us were standing around, celebrant did the thing and communion, and that was it. We cleaned it up. That was just a year ago. It feels like that was, I don't even remember that, to be honest, that we ever even did that. So it feels good to all be back together. I hope it does to you too. Uh, Today we're going to continue with numbers. We only have a few weeks left. So after this week, just two more lessons and then that's it for our number, our Moses section. So reminder, as we're thinking about next year, we start back after Labor Day. So that's September and we are going to be going into the kingdom period. So we'll be talking about Saul and Solomon, but we're going to be focusing very much on David, that kind of character study, Moses to David and then to Jesus so that we will do a gospel story. I guess we'll do the gospel of John um, in two years. It's not my favorite gospel, but that's okay. We'll do it. Um, It's a whole bunch of very trulys and, you know, weirdnesses. And Jesus talks like, I don't know, like he's trying to confuse you um, in John, but it still has many of our favorite passages. So it'll be nice. So we'll do kingdom period next year and we'll begin after Labor Day and we will definitely email you um, if you're on our list, which is good. You will get that for sure. The start date will be after Labor Day. If you are not on our email list, then do email above. You can go to stmichael.org slash RBS and you can email above, get on our email list and then you will know when we begin again next year. And I have been promised that we will have all of the back lessons booked into the podcast system over the summer. So that should be completely there from Luke five years ago all the way through. Apparently there was a problem with the number of podcast episodes. There could only be a maximum of 100 and I have done plenty more than 100. Um, And so they have to go in and do some configuration in order to make the earlier ones show up beyond 100. So they're figuring that out. Um, So today we're going to be getting close to the end of numbers, focusing specifically on chapters 20 and 21. And I hope that as you came in, you grabbed a map of the Exodus and the wilderness journey. For those of you on our email list, And watching from home, you should have received an email about 45 minutes ago with this map on it. So it looks like this, and it's a nice map. It's both Exodus and wilderness. I really wanted it for the wilderness because I went to prepare to draw the map for you today and realized there was no chance I could draw this spaghetti stuff of them walking all over the place and figured this is a nice thing to just have in your pocket so you can go and reference it anytime. I know it is small. And so if you want to get out your magnifying glass and read the words, um, but I will tell you that digitally, so any of you on the email list, you receive this as a PDF. You can zoom in on the PDF and it is very legible. And so if you wanted to just ignore the words, in person today, go home and zoom in on a screen, so much easier to see it. Okay, but the 
you get the point. They wandered all over the place. We're going to talk about it. Okay. Let's open with a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray, gracious God. We give you thanks for this day, thanks for this season of Easter, and thanks for the gift of the resurrection of your Son. We ask that the resurrection continue to inspire us, to fill us up, to change our lives and transform us, that we can, day by day, become more and more your disciples, so that we can be the change that you hope to see in the world as your kingdom expands. Be with our friends who cannot be with us today, those especially who need your healing touch. May your presence lift them up and surround them on all sides. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we have four sections. The first section is Moses' mistake. Section two, the fighting begins. Section three, we're shifting from Aaron to Eleazar. And section four, we're going to talk about some snakes. So we're going to begin with Moses' mistake. Look at chapter 20 of Numbers. Chapter 20 of Numbers really kicks off into the moment when Moses makes a mistake that keeps him from being able to go into the promised land. So I know we have mentioned this a few times along the way. Miriam will die. Aaron will die. And then Moses will die on the very edge of the promised land and essentially pass the torch on to Joshua. That is essentially a... Uh, Moses more or less cannot go into the promised land because he does not follow God's um, direction. And it's a little harsh, but it's important for us to know because if you've ever talked to a child or if you ever have to tell the story, um, it's kind of odd that Moses does all of these things and then dies up on the mountain looking at the promised land without being able to go in. It's strange. Numbers 20. This is where Moses makes the mistake that keeps him from going into the promised land. We're going to read Numbers 20. Then I'm going to read you a different passage from Exodus. So Numbers 20, verse 1. The Israelites, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kedesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that you, we had died when our kindred died before the Lord. Pause. Would that we had died when our kindred died before the Lord. All I can say is that the Bible needs a better editor because there are moments like this where if you're just reading it quickly, you may miss the shift. This is essentially decades after they go back out into the wilderness. So with that little subtle verse, we learn that they are now essentially talking about a time much later in the wilderness period. It's not the full 40 years, but a lot of time has passed. So essentially, you've got a new set of adults who are saying, I wish we would have died with them because this is the worst ever, right? This is a whole lot of drama, constant drama. And so they are complaining and all of that stuff. And these are different adults, all right? So we're going to jump back in. Verse, uh, we'll hit verse 4. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? 
It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and command the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Thus you shall provide drink for the congregation and their livestock. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, therefore... You shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and by which he showed his holiness. All right, we'll pause there. So, get the story. They're in the wilderness of Zin. Miriam has just died. The people are saying, oh, woe is me. We need water. I wish we would have already died. And then Moses and Aaron go and they prostrate themselves in front of the Lord saying, what are we supposed to do with these people? And God says, go speak to the rock and the rock will produce water. But instead, Moses goes out, chastises the people and strikes the rock with his staff. Now, we're going to talk about why that matters in a moment, but I want you to hold the story in your mind, what we just read. Now, I'm going to read for you from Exodus chapter 17. Ready? Listen to this. Follow along in Numbers 20 while I'm reading Exodus 17. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? That is Exodus chapter 17. And if you followed along in Numbers 20, you can see it's really similar. The wilderness of sin, the wilderness of zin. You get the roses striking the rock, water coming from the rock, the place being called Massa and Meribah, or the place being called just Meribah. So my question to you is, same story? Or a different story? This is a big question, and a lot of scholars do not agree. Tradition holds it's a totally different story. 
if we're tracking the chronology of the story, then what happened in Exodus happened very soon after the exit from Egypt. And what happens in Numbers happens decades after they have gone back out in the wilderness. So chronologically speaking, okay, they're different places. But when you actually put those stories next to each other, with the exception of Miriam's not mentioned in Exodus as dying, it's pretty much the same story. Now the result is different because God says, go strike the rock. Moses goes to strike the rock. Everything's good. In Numbers, God says, go speak to the rock, but Moses strikes the rock and everything is bad. So it's a very different context. Modern scholars probably fall like 50-50 on whether this is the same story told two different ways or two different stories. I cannot possibly think this is two different stories. I mean, how in the world? You've got Sin and Zen. I mean, that sounds pretty much the same to me. Then you've got Meribah twice. Well, how, why would they be in Meribah and then decades later be back in Meribah needing to strike the rock again? That's very strange. By the way, if you followed my Holy Land trip, I did not realize this, but basically in Petra is where Miriam's well is, where apparently Moses came into the valley, struck the rock, and water flowed from the rock. And today you can go to apparently this rock. We did not go um, because it's kind of up the valley from Petra itself, but we drove past it and they said, look, there it is. Um, and what it is, is Petra is all red rock. You know, if you've been out to red rocks in, in Colorado or something like that, it's all of this red rock and it's beautiful. And then in this sort of, there's, there's like a, a decline down into the lower valley. And in this little crevice, there is one big rock that is not the same color as everything else. It is gray. It's like a gray stone. It just, it stands right out. And I don't mean like the size of this podium. I mean like the size of a big box truck. I mean, it's a gigantic big gray rock in the middle of nothing else that is gray. Everything else is red. And that is where the spring is that still runs today. And so for whatever, that's what they call Miriam's well. And so could that be Meribah? Sure, maybe, we don't know. But there are people who have built many things around it and they will sell you that water. Absolutely. Um, so this moment is an interesting one for us, totally separate from the story itself, which we're going to talk about. I want to simply note, here you've got Numbers 20 and Exodus 17, side by side, could very well be the same story told in different ways. We've talked about this. We've noted that oral tradition is such that when something ultimately gets written down, a couple things could happen. Certainly there will be many versions of one story. So you might keep two versions of the same story. You might keep only a single version of that story. You might take two versions and mesh them together to create one version and we've seen that particularly in numbers where things almost seem out of order. Um, something happens and then something else happens later that you would have expected to have happened before the other thing. And that's probably taking two stories and meshing them. And again, not having a terribly good editor to just understand the flow of the story because back then it kind of didn't matter. We are very interested in precision. They are not. 
they just want a good story. And so this was a good story. So they told it twice. That's more or less what I think. Any questions or thoughts on that before we get into the actual is this, moment? Is this the only place in the Bible that says that Moses was not allowed to make it to the promised Yeah, this is where, well, no, because, sorry, question is, is this the only place where it says Moses didn't make it to the promised land? This is the story where God says you won't go. Later on, we see that Moses does not go into the promised land, and this story is referenced. So the story is referenced a few different places, but this is the story where Moses does apparently something bad enough to where he doesn't get into the promised land. So now when we go into the story to talk about it, the question for you to ask yourself is, is God actually doing this? Or did the people essentially create a story that explained why Moses didn't make it. Presumably, Moses did not go into the promised land. It could have been anything. It could have been anything. Fast forward hundreds of years, and it would make good sense. Moses seems born for this, right? He is born. He is saved from the infanticide. He grows up in the court. He is sent out into the wilderness. He should have died, but he didn't. He goes back. Through God, with, you know, with God's leadership, Moses essentially takes the people out of Egypt. They go to Sinai, the Ten Commandments, they wander the wilderness. It is a strange thing to then say, but he didn't actually get to the promised land. I imagine that as you're telling the story, I mean, if anyone who has a child, you know, anyone who's got like a four or six-year-old, immediately they would say, why did he die before the, I mean, that would be the whole, the question. And they probably had to figure this out. I mean, they had to answer this question. And could it be that the Exodus version of this story is the original? And the Numbers version of this story is the tweak to explain away why Moses did not make it? Sure. It makes perfect sense to me. We don't know. But the natural progression of the way that stories are told try to answer the questions before they can be asked so that it's easier for people to learn. If you have a story and then when you're done with your story, everyone's like, wait, what about and how did? And then the next time you tell that story, you're probably going to incorporate some of those answers so that you don't have as many questions at the end. And then that happens over and over and over again. And could that be where this comes from? Sure. Any other thoughts? Reminder online, you can ask your questions in the comment field. All right, so let's talk about this story. First off, Miriam dies. Just want to note, we don't get any story. We don't get any nice burial moment or anything like that. Miriam is just, poor Miriam, she died. Um, so just note that, Numbers 20. Then we get into this whole idea of striking the rock. Just to be clear, Moses goes and asks God what to do with the people who are complaining. And God says, go speak to the rock and the rock will produce water. Moses then goes and does two things God did not say to do. The first is essentially uh, criticizes the people 
for being annoying and frustrating and complaining and then hits the rock when he was told to speak to the rock. And so in both of those instances, Moses has done something that God did not say to do. Now, God did not say not to, but God said to do a certain thing. Okay. When we get to the point where Moses is, has done the thing that God didn't say to do, then God says, now, because you have, let me read it for you exactly. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So let's talk about what this really means. The big problem here is not that Moses did a bad thing. Moses gave the people water that they needed. The problem is Moses either, or maybe both, took credit for doing it when it was actually God and simply was not faithful to what God says. This coming Sunday, we're going to read what's always the second Sunday of Easter. It's Doubting Thomas. Always. Every Sunday after Easter Sunday, it is T Thomas doubting Jesus's resurrection. Now, you're going to hear me talk about why I think Thomas was actually the disciple that was like doing the right thing, but that's beside the point right now. I want to bring out that doubting is often given a bad rap. I think that people often don't want to doubt. They're afraid of doubting or they're suspect of people who doubt. I think doubting is great. If you're thinking at all, especially if you're thinking critically about anything, of course you should doubt stuff. That's part of the process of actually working through ideas and really getting into the meat of what faith is all about. What is the opposite of being faithful is really being self-centered. So essentially, what is faith? Faith is a connection with and dependence on God, understanding that we are not the ones that do all the good stuff. God through us is how the good things happen. Put another way, um, if you've, you've probably heard me say this in a funeral sermon or two, one of my least favorite things that people say is God won't give you more than you can handle. That's terrible. It's horrible theology because what's the point of Jesus if God doesn't give us anything that we can't handle? No, actually, that's exactly wrong. The point of Jesus is we can't handle all the stuff. And so it's the gift of Christ that allows us and strengthens us to actually face the problems of the world. God through us is what gives us that strength. And in this moment, Moses, although did the right thing at first, goes to God and says, what should I do with these people? Once God says, go do this thing, Moses then starts to focus too much on himself and that egotism really takes over. And so if we look back at what Moses says, God says, go speak to the rock and the rock will produce the water. So Moses, look at verse nine. Moses took the staff that the Lord commanded him and Moses gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, listen, you rebels, shall we, Moses and Aaron, bring water for you out of this rock? Then he lifted up his hand, struck the rock twice with his staff. So essentially Moses lets the frustration get the best of him. 
And he goes out, and not only does he chastise the people for their complaining, but then he says, do you need me to save you? Okay, hits the rock, the water comes out, because God is still good. But Moses does so as if he is a magician, or worse, as if he is God. That ultimately is the theological problem with this moment. Moses did not do badly by giving the people the water they needed. But when it came time for Moses to show God's glory in his good work, he didn't. Fast forward hundreds of years, and when this story is told, I hope it makes perfect sense, it does to me, that the point of this story when you tell your children or your friends or your grandchildren or whomever, is that you can do good in the world, but the good you do is because of God's presence in you. It's not just you, it's because of God in you. And I think that's a wonderful kind of story for us. And so Moses does not get to the promised land because he claimed to provide water to the people rather than God gifting the people with the water that they needed. There is your trivia answer for the day. Numbers 20. Any questions or thoughts on that before we move on? May y'all just take it nice and easy on God having not let Moses go in the promised land. Maybe you're just getting so good at this you don't need to ask. All right, move on. Let's look at how the fighting begins. Now, the problem with numbers here is that we have multiple sections between chapters 20 through 24, really. But I think, I think 22 and, well, nah, 22 and 3 especially have the great story of Balaam. And so we're doing Balaam next week because it's just, it's so good. We're just going to do that next week. So we're going to stop short of the Balaam story. But there are multiple moments of essentially fighting, either choosing not to fight or choosing to fight. And then put in between all of those different moments are the other stories of like the snakes and stuff like that. So what I'm going to do in the second section is I'm going to pull out all the sections of the fighting and we're going to talk about those first. So we're going to skip over a few of the other sections and come back to them in a few minutes. And so I'm going to read four sections between chapters 20 and 21. When I jump, I will tell you where I'm going, but I just want us to hear those groupings of verses. And then we're going to talk all about war. So the fighting begins. Look at verse 14 of chapter 20. So chapter 20, 14. Moses sent messengers from Kedesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the adversity that has befallen us, how our ancestors went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians oppressed us and our ancestors. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kedesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Now let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through or we will come out with the sword against you. 
The Israelites said to him, We will stay on the highway, and if we drink of your water, we and our livestock, then we will pay for it. It is only a small matter. Just let us pass through on foot. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large force, heavily armed. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through their territory. So Israel turned away from them. Now jump to chapter 21, verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atherim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into our hands, then we will utterly destroy their towns. The Lord listened to the voice of Israel and handed over the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their towns, so the place was called Hormah. Now jump to verse 21 of chapter 21. Then Israel sent messengers to King Sion of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of any well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through its territory. Sion gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness. He came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Israel put him to the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as to the Ammonites, for the boundary of the Ammonites was strong. Israel took all these towns, and Israel settled in all the towns of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all its villages. Now turn to verse 33. Then they turned and went up the road to Bashan, and the king Og of Bashan came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at er Edri. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce some of these things. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not be afraid of him, for I have given him into your hand with all his people and all his land. You shall do to him as you did to King Sin of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon. So they killed him, his sons, and all his people, until there was no survivor left, and they took possession of his land. All right, so we're going to pause there, those four sections. As you see in those four sections, Israel is getting progressively more violent. So we begin with the Edomites, and with the Edomites, they come out in force and say, you cannot cross our property, and Israel turns away from them. We end with that fourth section with they killed him and the sons and his people and there was no survivor left and they took possession of their land. So they have gone from essentially we're not going to fight to not only are we going to fight, but we're going to kill everyone who lives there and take their land. So a progression very quickly in just a chapter and a half. Now before we keep going, turn to your map. There is a lot of stuff happening here. And it is important for us to get some idea of where they are. So if you look at your map, I want you to look at the big gray names. Oh, I'm sorry. You should start by saying directly in the middle of your map, that's the Sinai Peninsula, right? It's like the upside down pyramid. If you go just a bit northeast, you can see that vertical green strip. That vertical green strip is essentially the Jordan River Valley. So the Jordan River begins at the very top Sea of Galilee, goes down to the Dead Sea and continues down the Jordan River Valley, going all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba, 
down at the bottom, which is east of the Sinai Peninsula. Today, it is not that green because the Dead Sea is shrinking and the water is being siphoned off. The nation of Israel gets something like 30% of its water from the Golan Heights and the Sea of Galilee. And so what has happened is the water is being siphoned off, not actually reaching the Dead Sea, which means it's not really strong enough to get all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba much of the year. And so all the southern stuff in the Dead Sea, if, you, if you've been to Israel or you've seen maps and you're thinking, it's not green, it's not now. It was then though. The Jordan River Valley was the lush area that, where you could grow stuff. All around the Jordan River Valley, you see a bunch of squiggle lines down in the southwest, south, to the east, to the north. That is essentially all the different places the Israelites were going as they were wandering around in the wilderness. If you want to go and attend to particular routes, feel free to knock yourself out. Look at the gray names, particularly to the west of the Jordan River Valley, you see Canaan. Canaan is essentially modern-day Israel. To the east of the Jordan River Valley, starting from the top, you see Bashan, Ammon, the Ammonites, Moab, the Moabites, Edom, the Edomites, down farther, Midian, the Midianites. So these are names of groups that I hope you've heard. I mean, you may not know anything about them, but at least you've heard Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites. Let's talk about their connection to the Israelites. Let's start first with the Edomites. So if you look kind of southeast of the Jordan River Valley, you see the land of Edom. That would have been a land through which the Israelites would have liked to have passed. You heard reference to the King's Highway, the King's Highway was the major trade route from Africa to Asia. Essentially, it was the safe passage between the two. So if you think back at this point in time, this is a few thousand years ago, there were major African empires, Egypt and Ethiopia being two of the big ones. They were very wealthy, very powerful. And there were also big Asian empires, Persia for one, but then even farther away, China is a player at this point. And so you've got China, India, Persia at least, plus many other smaller groups. And Babylon will come to you know, rise up here in a little bit. In order for those Asian empires to trade with the African empires, they essentially had to go through this area of the world. What was Canaan and the Sinai Peninsula? People didn't just go walk across the sand. There were routes that were established that essentially were like pearls on a necklace of wells. So what do you need when you're out there? You gotta have water. And so more or less what the King's Highway became was a way that you knew you could get from one water source to the next water source. And it was more or less safe. When the Egyptians are coming through on the King's Highway, the Edomites might feel pretty strong against the Israelites, but not against the Egyptians. And so they would just pass through. And so this very first section, back in Numbers uh, 20, Israel's saying, hey, just let us go down the King's Highway. 
you don't, this is, this is already done. Groups do this all the time. Just let us kind of go through the land on this easy route. Edom knows Israel is not that strong. And so they refuse. And they not only refuse in words, they come out in force and basically say, come and take it. And the Israelites at that point are not strong enough. But as we step through chapters 20 and 21, the Israelites are getting stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where they're able to take whatever they want at the end. So I told you about Edomites. Well, actually, I didn't. Edom is the descendant of Esau. Well, Edom really is a name for Esau. It doesn't matter. The Edomites come from Esau. So remember Jacob and Esau, the twins, Isaac's boys. Jacob ends up going and Jacob's children into Egypt. Esau and his descendants stay, stay essentially in this Jordan River Valley to the east side. That begins a split. So these are cousins. You've got the Israelites. Remember, Jacob's name becomes Israel. And so the Israelites go over there. Esau essentially becomes Edom and the Edomites stay. They know who each other are. They're distant cousins. Israel doesn't really want to fight its family, but it's got to kind of get the land at some point. Fast forward a little bit. We hear about the Canaanites. Canaan comes from Ham, who is Noah's son. So Canaan is Noah's grandson. And so if we go way back prior to Abraham, there's another sort of relational family tree that comes out of Noah. So again, these are much more distant cousins. But the point here is that these are still believed, in a sense, to be Semitic peoples. So in scripture, when you're talking about, good grief, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Ammonites, Jebusites, um, Israelites, you name it, these are all Semitic peoples. So in a sense, they, ha they share an ancestor at some point, some earlier than others, but they're all coming from the same family tree. Babylonians, different people. Persians, different people. Egyptians, different people. But all of these people are the same ethnic group. And they begin to fight amongst themselves about the particular land. All right, questions or clarity on that before we get into the others? Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, what really is the risk of Israel going through Edom, um, particularly because of the King's Highway? If I put myself in the place of the Edomites, I think it is very likely that the Edomites knew about the Israelites. Did they know about the Israelites as they were slaves in Egypt? Meh, maybe. But coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, going to Sinai, you know, all of these, it's hard to call them tribes, um, these sort of micro-nations, so to speak, they would have communicated with each other. 
So when you're talking about thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people coming out of Egypt and wandering into Sinai, everybody's going to hear about that. So that is not a story that stays quiet. And so you've got people who are traveling, merchants, they're seeing all this stuff happen. As they go up the King's Highway and they're doing all their trade, they're telling all these stories. So by the time the Israelites get to Edom, they know they're coming. You have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people with no place to live. You must assume they're looking for a place to land. When you let them into your space, it is much harder to get them out of your space. And so Edom is probably making the calculation, if we can just keep them out, it's more likely they won't actually ever stay. You know, when Egyptians want to travel the King's Highway, Egyptians are not staying in Edom. I mean, they know that, right? Edom is not where Egyptians want to live. They're just passing through. It's sort of like when you go, <laughs> what am I going to say not to be ugly? We all do this. Um, I mean, how many times are we driving between cities and we're in the middle of who knows where and we pull over because we have to use the restroom or we have to get gas or we need a soda or whatever? We don't want to live there. That's not our home. And so coming on through, no problem. This is different. Israelites, they're homeless. They have nothing. And so it could be kind of tempting. You know, they're walking through on the King's Highway and they're looking left and right and they're like, that barn doesn't look so bad. That well doesn't look so bad. Look, they've already cleared that land for farming. I mean, all of a sudden it starts to look kind of nice. That's essentially the way I read this story. The true answer is we don't know. But I try to make sense of what do the Israelites really need? What do the Edomites have that the Israelites might like? And believe me, if you look at this map again, pay attention to the color. Edom is a very pale area. So what does that mean? That's a desert, guys. This is not nice. This is not really where people want to live. That's probably why they are living there. Because Canaan, think about the progression of stuff. So Noah's grandson, Canaanites, they're probably in that land much earlier than Abraham's descendants. Remember, Abraham's descendants, they're way over in Persia. They're in Ur. And so by the time Abraham comes in, you can see very clearly Abraham ends up in the Negev. And the Negev is basically that southern, very southern tip of the Jordan River Valley close to the Gulf of Aqaba. And the reason he ends up there is because the Canaanites are already living in the good place. So the Canaanites have claimed the land that grows stuff. By the time Abraham comes over, there is no real good growing land. Remember when we talked way back in Genesis a couple years ago, Abraham becomes a herdsman because he can't be a farmer. Herding animals is not terribly efficient. It's much more efficient to grow stuff. I mean, if you can grow wheat and corn and whatever, you can feed a lot more people in a much more stable way. When you've got animals, people can't just eat meat all the time. I mean, they need some kind of grain. And you've got to walk those animals all over the place. And they are moody, and they get sick, 
and all of those things. It's really harder than farming. But when you get to a place where the farmland's already taken, what else can you do but raise animals? And so Edom is in a place where that's it. I mean, you're walking sheep around or goats or that's all you've got. Today, this is Jordan. And so when you cross out of Israel into Jordan, you go from essentially land that will grow things to land that will not. And when you drive down these highways in Jordan today, there is nothing. I mean, this is like West Texas on steroids. There, nothing is growing anywhere. It is just a road in the middle of, I mean, it is flat forever. We know this. It's just over there. Where are we? Over there. So it's, it's still something. And the Israelites have nothing. And so, hey, a well in the desert is better than homeless. And so I do think the Edomites are probably just protecting themselves. I mean, gosh, look at Ukraine. A lot easier to keep Russia out than it is now to expel them. So it's just kind of general, I think general warfare, military kind of strategy. Keep them out and it's a lot easier. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, so let's talk about war just a minute. I thought our commentary was quite helpful with this. It identifies more or less four ways to think about war or fighting in general. First is just war. And that's when you actually justify in some particular way acting against other people. We've talked just a little bit about this. In the different lists of Ten Commandments, one of the commandments that shifts is thou shalt not kill to thou shalt not murder. And depending on the list you read and which book you read, Exodus or Numbers, you've got, I mean Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus, then you've got different words. Well, kill and murder are very different things. If you're told you cannot kill, that's it. You cannot kill. If you're told you cannot murder, well, murder has ill intent. And if you're defending or any number of other things, that's not murder. It is killing, but not murder. And so you can turn and tweak that all you want. Two, another way to look at fighting is just pacifism. You just don't. The end. Three, a crusade. And a crusade is really, it's kind of a just war, but it's not. A crusade is really about turning something wrong into something right. It's looking to bring truth into a place where you think something is very untrue. So obviously the crusades, like capital C crusades we know about, Islam, bad, Christianity, good, we're going to go expel Islam because Christ would want us to or whatever, right? The person who let himself be killed would definitely want us to slaughter lots of people. Then number four, pragmatism. That's simply a, our interests are at play. So, I mean, in my lifetime, what's a classic example of this would be the first Gulf War. Why in the world would we ever care about a little tiny country 
that was invaded by a slightly larger country that has essentially nothing to do with us except for what? Oil. And so, I mean, we can say all we want and we can be poetic as much as we want. We wanted to protect our oil interests. That's why we care about Kuwait and that's why we don't care about Sudan and any of these other places where genocide is happening all over the place. They don't have anything that interests us. So that essentially is what defines modern geopolitics is really the pragmatism. What matters to us? I mean, I don't know about you, but if you read or listen to much about the Ukrainian war, there is a sense of right and wrong. But what I hear more than any other idea discussed is wheat and fertilizer. It's what's being talked about over and over and over again because between Ukraine and Russia, what is it like 30% of the world's wheat is produced? And Russia provides fertilizer to apparently everyone in the world because that's what everyone's talking about now is how can you, are we gonna be able to get the fertilizer we need? Do we have to do different things? When you think about what's happening there, it so very quickly pivots from just a humanitarian crisis to how are we gonna eat? That's the pragmatism of most war most of the time today. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, I think we're good with that section. Any thoughts or questions? No? All right, we have two more sections, which I think we can do in 10 minutes. Section three today, from Aaron to Eleazar. Look back now at chapter 20, verse 24. Chapter 20, 24. Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the Israelites, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar, and bring them up to Mount Hor. Strip Aaron of his vestments, and put them on his son Eleazar. But Aaron shall be gathered to his people, and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his vestments and put them on his son Eleazar, and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. When all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. So this is just a moment to note. Not a lot of explanation needed. I do think it's very interesting. Poor Miriam is just dead. Aaron gets a nice show. Um, Aaron is, as we've discussed over the last few weeks, I'm about to sneeze, sorry. I'm really trying not to because I'm afraid for the people watching online because I won't be able to turn that microphone off. Uh, I think I got it, okay. So Aaron is the high priest. So as we have set up the temple and the way that we worship and the way that we sacrifice, Aaron is the one from the tribe of Levi. And remember we had Levi and the three branches of that tribe and Aaron's branch is really the prime priest branch. Aaron has become that high priest. We are, between Leviticus and Numbers, really focusing on the way that Israel worships. And so here we have Aaron representing that good, high quality worship and relationship to God. And so Aaron's going to die at some point. How do you pass on the torch? 
This is how. And in this small section, we get a critically important example of the way in which leadership roles are passed from one generation to the next. Now, unfortunately, you do get a bit of a mon monarchical system here, which is Aaron's son becomes the next high priest. Meh. It won't be a perfect line from there, but essentially you do get when, have you heard the phrase, the royal priesthood? This is kind of it. So there is this royalty line kind of way, this line of succession, where if there's an heir, then that heir becomes the next high priest. And there are families that still maintain this in some different branches of Judaism. Most of Judaism does not do this kind of royal line of succession anymore, but some really do keep that bloodline very pure, as pure as possible. Here, Aaron passes on to Eleazar, and you do almost get this physical mantle. I mean, you can imagine when we are dressed up on Sunday mornings with our albs and our chasubles, you know, that big poncho that we wear, that's very fancy. Um, if you can imagine handing that over to someone, very ceremonial, that's literally what is happening in this story is the stuff that Aaron wears, which we didn't go into all of this, but if you really care to go dig, you can, which is there's the plate and the jewels and the, the high priest has a whole bunch of junk. Um, I'm sorry, uh, very special things. Um, and so the high priest kind of takes all that stuff, gives it to Eleazar. Now Eleazar comes down off the mountain and everyone says, ah, the new high priest. That is what's happening in these verses. Any questions about that? All right, now we get to the weirdest part of this section of Numbers. Maybe this is the weirdest part of Numbers. Look at chapter 21, verse 4. Chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So, by the way, this is the weird roundabout spaghetti route that you see on your map to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. Surprise, surprise. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I mean, it's like, you know, same song, different verse. For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. I thought there was no food, but they detest the miserable food they have. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. <laughs> I love this section. Um, so <laughs> the people complain, and this is like, this is totally what God should have done from the beginning, right? Oh, you complain? You know, I mean, like, you will stop complaining if you die from the snakes. And so here they are complaining. God sends the serpents out. They get bitten. People start dying. People finally say, okay, maybe that was not a good idea. And so how, what can we do? How can we help? God doesn't send the snakes away, okay? Instead, God says, Moses, make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, 
so that when people look at the snake on the pole, they will be saved from their snake bite. This is so weird, right? How about no snakes? Not look at the pole and then you won't die from your snake bite. Except this is one of those moments where if we just pause and think, what is really happening in this story? We live in a dangerous world and bad things will happen. God does not prevent the bad things, but God gives us a way to be healed from the problems of the world. Now, in the Gospel of John chapter 3, don't worry, I'm going to read it to you. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, Nicodemus says to Jesus, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Then he goes on to verse 12. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from the heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This moment from Numbers is quoted by Jesus. And then all of a sudden, what we see on the cross is Jesus becomes what heals us when the world hurts us. So here in Numbers, the Israelites are troubled by the world and they are dying. And God's intent on keeping them safe and healthy is by putting a serpent up on a pole. And if they look at that serpent on the pole, they will be saved. Now fast forward. And what Jesus says to us is that essentially the world is scary and we can be hurt in countless ways. We are saved by putting our eyes onto him on the pole, on the cross. And when we gaze upon the cross, that's when we receive our true healing. And now that makes the serpent story a little less weird. Yeah, wow. All right. I'm in there today. I hope you all have a wonderful week, and I will see you next week. Two more lessons left. Bye.